Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Is there going to be Civil War II? I mean, the thought would have been ridiculous to me even a few years ago. But last year, I actually heard smart people on both sides of the aisle. This is not political. On both sides, people were saying, oh, we're going to secede if this happens, if XYZ happens. And again, I heard this from Democrats. I heard this from Republicans. I heard this from Libertarians. But what happens if there's a civil war too? So I brought on Clay Martin. He's a former Green Beret. He's been there, done that. He's seen civil wars in action. He wrote a book, Prairie Fire, guidebook for surviving civil war too. Here's Clay Martin to tell us how to do it. Clay, you wrote a book about prepping for Civil War II. It's called Prairie Fire. This comes after your book, Concrete Jungle. I forgot the subtitle of that one. Um, uh, <laughs> Green Beret's Guide to uh, Something Surviving Civil War. Urban Just, Survival. Urban Survival. Yeah, that's right. Yep. So, you know, I wonder about this because, look, I think about Seattle last year where they had the the CHOP or the Chaz the or Chaz, whatever. The, yeah. Oh, yeah, the Chaz. Yeah. yeah. Like, you know, I'll, I'll do proper introductions for you and everything, but yeah. the, the Chaz really bothered me. Like this completely autonomous zone mm -hmm. was taken over by yep. God knows who. The mayor said it was like an arts festival and teenagers were actually dying. Yeah. Like like the children yeah. of parents were, were, were dying in this yeah. and they, they, they wouldn't let ambulances in. They wouldn't let the hot, uh, medical people in. And... Nobody got, and then when they said we're going to take over the mayor's house, it, it, she put ran tanks through it and ended the whole thing. And now the main guy who was running that is like selling t-shirts online. Like, why wasn't anybody charged for that? Man, that's that's the world that we live in. I mean, that's that's part of like the the slippery slope of like disaster is the fact that that was allowed to happen basically for political gain. Uh, and I, that one's really bad. Uh, ironically enough, there's one happening in, uh, in California right now that's kind of like the opposite. It's like uh, some super right-wing dudes that basically declared this two-little-town area is like seceded. And nobody's really doing anything about that one either. But the, uh, the, the Chaz one, I, I'm kind of with you, that really bothered me as well. Uh, Simply because, like you said, it, it was like a it was like a New Amsterdam on on steroids. Like they, they got away with whatever they wanted in there, and, and people paid for it. That was really weird, and yeah. it's 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 also you know contrary to uh, to what we would think of both the state and federal government doing in a situation like that. It was really bizarre. And, but there's obviously we've seen a lot of bizarre things, and and some of it done with good intentions. Some of it I can't understand. Like right. okay, you know. Economic lockdowns, there's a lot of debate about it. Right. If you have a pandemic going, you know, I don't know what the, I'm not a doctor, I don't know what the medical is, but you would see like 
furniture stores closed, which never have anybody in them. And <laughs> right. downtown, there would be a 20,000 person protest, but I guess somehow COVID wasn't gonna be transmitted in those. So those were allowed. So I just, everything became, I couldn't understand what was the consistency of anything. And maybe that's where you, st like, what is Civil War II? Like, how's that gonna happen? <laughs> that's open to debate, because there are a lot of ways that it can go down. Uh, and what, all those things that you were just talking about, that's really, I think, the first time that we've seen uh, protests happen on that scale. And they weren't even they were riots, let's call them what they were, for purely for political gain. Uh, and, and basically what I came to the conclusion of, probably about mid-July of 2020, I mean, that was actually a, a well-funded color revolution. All that BLM stuff that started was the beginning phases of a color revolution that was in What do you mean by color revolution? Color revolution is this term that loosely means we started this in the early 90s. It was uh, kind of like a, using a nonviolent, mostly, protest movement to overthrow uh, a, a government. Uh, and it, it, it worked in a lot of ways because, you know, in the 90s starting, they wouldn't really let you like machine gun protesters anymore. Where world opinion would instantly turn against you. So you could get away from that. You could go to kind of this pseudo, we break things but uh, we don't really, you know, hang the president, for instance, from a lamppost uh, style. Of well, why is that called a color revolution? Like, is that uh, named after like practice revolutions in the military? Or no, not not at all. It, it was just a. I don't even really know who came up with the term, it, but it was the. Uh, it was like the Orange Revolution in Ukraine in '92. Uh, and a lot of times it had to do purely with some color that was picked to represent, like we want to overthrow this, so we're wearing orange armbands or purple or, or whatever. And this kind of became known as color revolutions. Uh, and we were behind a lot of those. That's kind of like what our government does. Right, so so you're saying in the, you know, BLM, again, all these things I feel start with good intentions, but mm -hmm. as yes. a lot of people know, even when I was talking to um, Eric Adams, who's now the mayor of New York City, I was talking to him right after or, or during the BLM, and he said there were other forces that intermingled oh, or mixed in yeah, big time. and and like like bricks would show up at different parts of the city right simultaneously all of a sudden and and those weren't the protesters but there were groups mixed in like and he never uh, nobody ever explained like who those groups were maybe people didn't know i don't know but like all of these things together like is this like what what happens that, that's actually a, a hallmark of a color revolution because a lot of times you don't have like if I'm little, you know, Langley CA nerd or whatever, and I want to go over to Ukraine and, and have a color revolution, there has to be a legitimate grievance to start with. I, I can't just go in and and mass make up, uh, you know, half the country to uh, to freak out and have a protest over nothing. It helps immensely if there was a a legitimate grievance there to start with, or a, a felt legitimate grievance. And I, I really think that's where that where the BLM thing went. I mean, I think a lot of those people when they started protesting, they they had a legitimate grievance, They're like, hey, we want to. We want to bring awareness to these things that are happening. And then it was, yeah, exactly. It was rapidly hijacked by, uh, to some degree, uh, criminals, uh, just people that were just there to loot things and, you know, make some new TVs and Nikes. More nefarious, you started to see this, like, level of command and control that told you there was a lot of money behind this. Uh, I, I was actually just speaking in town uh, where I live about this in the meeting the other night. If you knew what you were looking for, you could watch from up top and see these little, uh, usually cars with some kind of marking on top of them. A lot of times they're just little white Corollas. They were driving around the protest and they were coordinating things. And then you would also see a lot of these elements, there would be like two or three main agitators up front. And they were kind of the guys that were in charge. And this, this kind of goes back to human nature too. If we just have a mob and we're out there and we don't really know, we're, we're milling about and we got signs and we're, we're angry, but we're not really focused. It, it doesn't take a lot to focus that mob and then kind of have the mob mentality take over and do your bidding. You could see that in pretty much every protest that happened last summer. And uh, it's, it's very ironic also that it was a, a BLM protest, Black Lives Matter. It was almost always led, the first brick was always thrown, the first Molotov, by a little college-age white guy, almost every time. Yeah, they at one point in New York, they arrested um, like two lawyers or two people working for a law firm yes. who threw a Molotov cocktail at a police car. Right. 
and this will be the last question I ask on this, but yeah. like that St. Louis guy, like a retired cop was trying yeah. to stop uh, people from robbing yep. a, a, a TV, yeah, a pawn shop in a, in a, in a mostly black community. Mm -hmm. And he was shot on video. It's on yep. YouTube. It's shot horrible to watch. Yep. It, shot and killed. You see him bleeding out and you hear the guy saying, I didn't mean to do it. I didn't mean to do it. That guy is clearly identifiable. Like, mm -hmm. why didn't they catch that guy? Because they didn't want to. You know, that's that's really where this comes down to. That that's also why, especially in retrospect, you can look at this as all a coordinated effort to to kind of try and overthrow the government because all the charges went away. Because that was such a good lead up to, oh, uh, this is scary times now. Oh, now we're going into this election season, and you really want this to continue. It's kind of part of what the uh, the mobs and violence is about. Anyway, it's about scaring people, normal people, so you have an undue influence at the uh, at the ballot box. Uh, it's, I mean, all those riots stopped about September, and we haven't heard from uh, from them since in, in any kind of major way, except for the trials of uh, Derek Chauvin and the trial of uh, Kyle Rittenhouse. So, so okay, so obviously these are things that put the phrase "civil war" on. You know, that used to be like a crazy phrase. It, it the U.S. Was. can't can't have a civil Absolutely. war. Right. But when people like, you know, for instance, Tucker Max, who we both know, when he was, I was having lunch with him shortly after all that, and he was saying it could happen. This was before all the doomer optimism stuff that, that he has out now. Like, what's going on? Like, why has this become like an acceptable phrase, and how could this <laughs> actually happen? I'm scared. Well, I, man, I am too. Uh, let me go and throw that out there too. The people that want a civil war the least in this country are the people that have fought an away game war because we've seen what it looks like. And to think about that happening in our own streets, like just the scale of destruction and death and, and things that I like, like I like air conditioning. I like having my trash taken out by the trash. Like those are all great things. But for us that have, that have seen it, like we want that the least. Now, how could it happen? Man, you're, you're right. Three years ago, even saying that was like a nut bar conspiracy theory, like instantly, like, like we're done talking phrase. But now, I mean, if you look around at like mainstream media, like there are a lot of people that have said the words uh, civil war, civil war is coming, national divorce is another way for them to, uh, to phrase it. You know, mainstream guys uh, are saying these kinds of things. I, I think even Tucker Carlson has uttered the words, you know, national divorce. So it's it's on everybody's mind, and that should also be an indicator that it's it's a lot more back in the realm of possibility. Now, how does it actually shake out? It's that's a tough one. Is that there are a lot of ways that uh, that a country can slide into a civil war. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people when they initially think the word civil war, they think you know eighteen sixty. Like you have some guys in blue, I got some guys in gray, and we're going to meet on the battlefield and fight it out. That's that's probably like a lot less likely uh, in, in the modern world. Uh, we'd probably be closer to something like the uh, Croatian Civil War. Uh, Croatia in 1991, you know, the wall fell, communism was all dying. They want to break away from uh, Yugoslavia. So it starts as like a, a actually some riots and stuff. And then it's, it becomes uh, some small scale like guerrilla fighting closer to crime really than like combat. They're not like shooting artillery at each other yet, but like they're going to go over here and burn down this, uh, this Slavic business. And they're going to come back and burn this Croatian, you know, neighborhood. And that goes back and forth, back and forth for a while. Uh, that's probably the most likely case for us. And then it, it finally escalates uh, and they eventually uh, break away like a section of territory. Like this is ours now and we're a new nation. Like a bigger autonomous zone of like what we saw. <laughs> much, much bigger. It took them about three years. So, so what's the sequence of events that could trigger anything here? And of course, your book is about how to, how, not how do we fight it, but how do we survive it? Uh, right. And that's what I'm, like, I don't want to fight in anything, but I do want to survive if, if right. things go bad. Well, uh, on top of which, you know, it's, it's funny that it would, be, it would even be illegal for me to say this is how we win it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that gets right back into like the, the treason act, that kind of thing. But survive it is is a big piece. And uh, but what's the sequence of events that could like even lead to it right here? Well, like I said, there's multiple ways for this to go. The the one that I covered in the book obviously didn't happen yet. Uh, so I, I saw the uh, 
the, the fact that the election would probably be contested coming about July. And I think a lot of other people did too. Like we knew this was not going to be a, a normal sequence of events. But I, I also didn't think that it would be as uh, maybe blatantly screwed up as it, as it was. So one of the ways that it could have gone, and still could go after the 22 or the 24, is uh, most likely action of events. Like I said, this is not 1860. I don't think that a state's going to be like, that's it, we're out of the Union, we secede, like South Carolina did. If for no other reason, that's been kind of settled by Lincoln Doctrine. Like You, you can't leave, because we'll send dudes with bayonets to make sure that you don't leave. But it is very easy for, uh, especially a coalition of states, let's say like Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, Missouri, and Arkansas, to say after the 24 election, like, that was in no way legit, and we do not recognize that government that's sitting as the right, rightful uh, government of the United States, and now we have a government in exile over here with our government. That's a, that's a much more likely scenario. And then, of course... You know, the U.S. government will respond. And by the way, I'm not saying this is a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a thing. But yeah, it's just a thing that could happen because we, we it was scary around election time. You're right. Right. Um, so the U.S. government could respond and say, listen, we're sending in troops and you're not doing that. Right. And no states are like, no, you're not. And it, it doesn't take it doesn't take cruise missiles to start a civil war. You know, that can merely be as much as okay, just like we did do at Dan Segregation, we're sending the 82nd Airborne to your state and uh, they're going to take over your state house. And then like you have some protesters and those guys show up and then there's a pushing match and then somebody starts pulling the trigger. That's how things escalate. That's how the cycle of violence starts. And it's, uh, it's, it's easy to start and it's very difficult to stop. And so at this time, like what's happening in terms of infrastructure? Is electricity being cut off? Is water being cut off? Is gas being cut off? Very probably. I mean, you talk about like phase one, phase two, phase three, right? Like it's in the phase two area where things or phase beginning of phase three, things start to shut down. Right. And, uh, I mean, that's something that was, was talked about and not ever executed, uh, during a uh, coronavirus around about, uh, July, yeah, Trump being in, in the white house at the time, uh, you know, talked openly about the idea of, we might have to st- shut down interstate travel. We might have to have all the states like, you know, close off their borders, which is, uh, is, is pretty crazy, but yeah, yeah. that's, an, that's an easy way for it to start. Uh, that would be actually, you know, a very good, uh, U S government, federal government response to a state, especially a landlocked state saying, uh, you know, we don't recognize you anymore. Like, okay, well, we blockade you then. Uh, and now nothing goes in or out. So yeah. I, and depending on what kind of state you have, what's, what's made locally, that could be very bad, uh, I mean, even if you think that you make a lot of things in your state, the, the modern world, as, as we've seen over this process, is more interwoven than, than I think I would have appreciated two years ago. Yeah, I mean, I think it's our, it, was, it was scary to realize how much of our goods, how many of our goods were made in China when all this oh, started. Oh, wow. Like, I didn't realize yeah. that everything was essentially made there. Like, <laughs> even, even food that we grow here is sent there to be packaged and then sent back. Right. Right, which is absolutely nuts. And our dr- our drugs are, are like our pharma drugs are oh. are all made there. Oh, that's terrifying. Uh, as well as, you know, it, precursor chemicals for our refineries. We always think of ourselves as making a lot of fuel in the area where I'm at. Well, that's great. We do have a lot of refineries. We can make a lot of gas, but only in some cases if we can get the magical chemicals from China. So, yeah. That's it's 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 really wild how how much that's true. So, okay, so let's say I'm in my house and suddenly I'm a little nervous. Oh, the electricity is going to shut off or mm-hmm. the water is going to shut off. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you start preparing for these things? And I feel like you, you can't really prepare for things in a worst case scenario, but, but maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> right, right. No, I mean, you, you make a very good point there. To me, that's kind of like, that's kind of like tactical level prepping. Uh, that's like, okay, what do I need to, you know, fill up my bathtub and have some beans in a bucket and, and that kind of thing. And that will get you through like the initial couple of days or a couple of weeks. The The biggest theme that I wanted people to take from both books actually is that you can't do it by yourself. Like Jimmy or Clay or, or whatever is not going to be fine in my house with like my stuff that I use my Visa card to acquire. 
uh, and I use myself as an example for that a lot of the times. Like, you know, I was a 15-year special operations guy. I, I have done all kinds of, like, Commando Steve ninja stuff. And uh, I can't do this by myself. Like, there's not a chance. Like, I got to sleep sometimes. I can't even handle security alone at my house for an extended period of time because I'm going to have to take a nap. Like, this is how it is. The, honestly, the best way is you, you've got to get a group of people together that have hopefully a wide variety of skill sets and, uh, and start thinking this through. And as much as you can, yeah, you solve your logistical problems like, okay, I got a water filter and I got a water source over there. Uh, if I live in a wet area, it's not a big problem. If I live in like Arizona, well, that's, that's the first problem. Like that's number one. I, I got to have like 10,000 gallons stored somewhere or a well that's capable of producing something. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a lot more about the long-term survival than it is the short-term survival, I think. So I would, so, okay. A well seems like, or a well or connection to someone with a well seems, or, or some water source seems important. What about um, electricity, gas, stuff like that? <laughs> I guess a generator, your own generator. What are you going to feed it with? I, yeah, basically, I this is the hor- this should be the horrifying thing. When it comes right down to it, electricity and fuel are are the rarest commodities that there are. Now, I, I will also say that having seen this in the uh, the Balkans and the Middle East, you know, Iraq especially, right after the invasion, when we took like all their power offline. And their ability, just a couple of years later, to to bring power back, it's it's kind of a mixed bag. Uh, think about electricity. How how where's your power made? And that depends where you live. Like for us in the region that I live in, we have a very robust grid, and there's a power plant five six miles away from me that makes the power for our area. We still have a lot of very small power plants. For people in some parts of the country that have a major power plant that's you know three four hundred miles away or or california for that matter trying to bring electricity in from texas during the whole uh, enron debacle there's not going to be any power there's none and you can circumvent that to a degree by having you know super robust solar and a battery bank but that's a that's a really big dice roll uh, if for no other reason also then you've invested this huge amount of money in something that you can't take with you and can easily be taken from you. Uh, the, the fuels bit, like once again, using the Iraq example, uh, people think that Iraq had a lot of fuel. Well, they, they did. They had a lot of raw crude oil. But they did not have a lot of refining capacity. So, man, I want to say gas was up to like, we're talking like 2006, 2007. We're paying like a dollar a gallon, $2 a gallon. They were paying like five and ten dollars per gallon, mm. all on a black market. All some dude on the side of the road that I don't know stole some fuel off a fuel convoy or got some of the one that dribbled out of that refinery. And I, I mean, they were lucky to get five gallons. Uh, so, so fuel is a that's a massively bad issue. They go to this whole rabbit hole too of like, okay, if I live near enough farmers, I can make biodiesel and. But it's a, it's just basically when you had to plan on there not being, I think. So I guess, I guess I know, I know one guy with, who does solar power and mm-hmm. during the summer months and spring months, he has a hundred percent of his power taken care of by mm-hmm. himself. And yep. then in the winter months, he's got about 50%. Mm-hmm. And I asked him if he had to store his power, he said he could store just a couple of days worth only. The ability to store power is like prohibitively expensive. Uh, you start talking about, you know, uh, uh, fuel, or what do they call them? Wet cell batteries and all this other crazy stuff to to actually store power for any length of time. I mean, those things are like $1,000 per battery, and that won't last that long. It's not that many watts. Uh, so, I mean, it becomes a huge issue for us as as modern people. And you think about simple things like refrigeration. Like, you know, how many people's, you know, preparation plan, like, okay, everything's going to fall apart. Well, I've got two deep freezers full of meat. Well, if power goes out, like, that's that's done. Unless it's wintertime. And it's going to be spring eventually. Uh, yeah, so I mean, it's a it's a dark subject. So when people say, "Oh, I have my own generator," what does that mean? Where, the, where, like you said, where are they getting the power from? Right. I mean, I, I've actually got a, a generator. Uh, it's a very common thing in a, in our area. Uh, and it, I mean, this house I just bought actually has one attached to the house. It runs off natural gas. It's great. It's, it instantly kicks on if the power goes out. But once again, 
you know, that's not a real prep plan. That's like a nice to have thing if a storm hits and we lose power for three or four days. That is not a long term solution to anything. With anybody else, if it's not one of those, it's a, a little generator that you fill up with a gas can. Like that's that's not a realistic plan to uh, to have electricity. So, what would you do if like power was out for an extended period of time? It is uh, it is going to suck. That's that's just that's all there is to it. Uh, I mean, there there is what what they do in Iraq. Like, what did the people do for years? Looked at the wall. Like burned, uh, you know, burned, burned uh, either propane from a you know, little canister or or animal dung to uh, to make their their food. Uh, mm-hmm. They didn't have lights. I mean, you you could live without electricity. It's not it's not fun. It's not a great time. Uh, I mean, especially like the area I live in is brutally hot in the summer. I mean, miserable. You're just gonna have to take it. I mean, that there is that that's it. And then what about in terms of like food, like, like how, how much should you pr- prepare to have food in advance? Like even canned food, maybe not frozen food. Cause like you say, the power could go out, but even canned food, like what would a responsible person have in storage? I, I really like to have a year, uh, and, and two is better, but neither of those is actually like a hundred percent true. Uh, I can't remember if we cover this deeply in the, in the, in the book or not, but a lot of other people are not preparing. Uh, so, you know, to think that I'm going to have my two years of food and I'm going to sit in my house in the middle of town and, and, you know, cook beans and rice while everybody else is starving to death is incredibly unrealistic. Like that's not going to happen. Let, you make a really interesting point in the book that you should buy if if you do like do a lot of buying of food to store up. You should do it out of town so people don't know. Oh yeah, yeah. That, that you have all the food, but at the same time, you should also buy local so everybody's your friend. It's a catch twenty two, and it, it that's that's like a lot of things in 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 the prepping arena. Like yeah, I think you should have all the food you can lay hands to right now. But the bigger deal is to have a group of people and have them also thinking about buying the food. Is I guarantee you some of that is going to get siphoned off. It may be bribes. It may be a method of keeping some people that you don't even really like that much, but keeping them kind of like on your side so they don't burn your house down in the middle of the night. I mean, food is an issue that I think Americans really can't appreciate, like how desperate people will get for food. Like, you take one of these soccer moms that, you know, has the coexist bumper sticker and is a nice lady in the world, like, when her children start starving to death, like she will cave your skull in with an axe for a can of spaghettios, like without question. I mean, horrible, horrible things happen in famines. We've seen this all over the world, and all throughout history. Uh, it's happened in, in China. It happened in Ukraine. It happened in uh, uh, Russia during uh, during one of their starvations. I I believe it was China where they would trade babies so they didn't have to eat their own when it came to cannibalism. Oh, like, gosh. Yeah, it's bad, man. It's what what's the worst thing you've personally seen? Like you were in the Green Beret for and you've been yeah. involved in a lot of different um actions. Like what's what's the worst thing you've seen? Oh man, it hit in a torture cell house. Uh you know, that was one of the things that uh various terrorist organizations really, you know, specialized in was uh capturing somebody and you know, drilling their knees out with a black and decker and all kinds of other like terrible, terrible shit. And uh, even showing up in the aftermath of one of those is uh is stomach turning. Ugh. And like, I, you know, obviously everybody's seen torture in, in the movies, yeah. but what's, what's the difference between real life and the movies in that? It's not going to stop and the good guys are not going to show up to rescue you and you're going to die a horrible, horrible death. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's almost unthinkable. I mean, it's to the point that like, I mean, we, we had standing agreements amongst each other. Like I will shoot you in the head if we're going to be captured you, my friend, uh, and I would expect you to do the same for me as, uh, yeah, that's just, that's no way to go out. Ugh. yeah. I, I, I forgot. I remember reading a couple weeks ago how Gaddafi was killed and oh, I forget now the details, but it couldn't have been yeah. worth it. His entire life just added up to that at the end. Yeah. He should have, he should have pulled a grenade out and done himself. I mean, I'm, and I'm sure he would have at, at any point in that, in that event. Uh, yeah, it's, it's bad. And that's also a reason that, uh, that a civil war is so scary 
Civil Wars, almost without exception, feature more of that style of brutality than a regular war does. For what reason? Why is that? I, I don't know. I mean, to some degree, people feel more like they're fighting traitors than, than enemies. And uh, it's a lot easier to do terrible shit to a traitor, someone that should be on your side but has not. Uh, it's, it's more personal, typically, also, because both sides, you know, families are involved and they become targets. Uh, yeah, it's just, it just is. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I I became a really good guest of Airbnbs. And I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house... I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Looking for a rewarding, life-changing opportunity that enhances the lives of children in your community? Well, with almost 50 years of experience, Huntington Learning Center is the nation's leading K-12 tutoring and test prep franchise dedicated to shaping brighter futures for both students and franchisees. Huntington is the top revenue-producing supplemental education franchise in the U.S., and their proven system is the key to success for you and your students. The Huntington Advantage includes low startup cost, turnkey systems, dedicated support teams, national and local marketing support, and multiple revenue streams to help you build a life-enriching and profitable business. No education experience needed. In today's environment, the need for tutoring has never been greater. When you become part of Huntington Learning Center, you're filling an urgent need in the growing $5 billion supplemental education industry. To learn more, Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com. Make a meaningful difference. Pursue your dreams of business ownership and be a positive force in your community. Don't wait. Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com today. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like, I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's health care by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely got to use HIMSS from now on. Not that you need it. You're you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You're getting there. You You might need it. Who knows? 
But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. I would say the number one thing you seem to be suggesting is find your crew, find your the group yeah, of people, man. whether it's neighbors find, or people in your area yes. who you have, who have your back and you have their back. And you're kind of like, you know, people would rather pick on an individual than a group of oh, what seem like organized people. But yeah. what, what other types of preparation should one do or should, or how should I be thinking? We should be and not, not just me, yeah. but like anybody. anybody. And, and by the way, let's say the odds of this are like, close to zero, they're still greater than they were, I feel, 10 years ago. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Well, and that, that goes back to, uh, you know, one of the points is like, don't like cash out your 401k yet and buy, you know, generators and night vision goggles. Now, that's that's good advice right now on, uh, you know, January the, the of 2022. Is that good advice in May of 2022? I don't know. There, there may come a time where you want to spend everything you've got on, on preparation work, but also don't think about buying your way out of trouble. Think about being mentally prepared, physically prepared. You know, fitness is a huge deal for both, uh, you know, surviving injury and your ability to, uh, to, to take, you know, mental kind of punishment. Uh, it makes you harder to kill in general in a fight. And it also makes it so you can, you can stay up longer. You can take more, more punishment overall. Uh, and I guess probably the, the biggest thing about fitness is it also builds mental toughness. Every time you go to the weight room when you didn't want to or run a mile when you didn't want to, you're building mental toughness. And that's going to be the, the biggest thing that we're going to need uh, if this does go hot. Now, as far as the other piece of your question, like what should you be doing? I, I, again, I cannot overemphasize enough that having a tight group of diverse friends that have different skill sets also building those relationships now while there's not really a problem. It's any relationship that you build after things start falling apart is suspect. Uh, you know, if, if, if I show up, we've never met before, and I'm like, hey, I broke down in your town during the middle of this crisis, and I noticed that you're eating. Well, I'm an ex-ranger commando, and I wanna, I'll protect your house if you give me some of your food. Can you really trust that relationship? No, it's built on necessity and it may be built on lies like you don't know so i mean it seems like there's nothing really to do <laughs> <laughs> i mean most people are not like i i appreciate the part about you know find your group but most people are not going to build kind of like a community of friends who will protect each other you, you know they're already in their communities they're already in the neighborhoods well that's fine they're, i mean do, do, you, do you have friends where you live yeah but okay. I mean, I'm, I just moved here, so I'm, oh. I'm just getting to know people. Well, you got you to work on it then. And that, that is one of the things, though, like having friends, and I, I don't care what they do for a living. Like, I, you know, I don't care if they're all, you know, some kind of weird thing. I don't care if they're all pacifists. Still having that group of friends that you've met in, in real, what we call meat space, at least you have a real relationship with them. And at least they're close enough also to influence things when things do go bad. You know, the power goes out like nationwide today from an EMP strike or whatever. You don't have any more friends that are 20, 30 miles away from you. Like those people don't exist in many ways. Unless you built some elaborate plan to take your family and walk out there with your backpack, they don't exist. Now, the, uh, you know, vegan tattoo artist that didn't want to have a gun, she does exist. And you know her. There's still value in that relationship. All right. 
there's, those are still people that you can rely on. Those people also that even as things go on, you can train to be more and more reliant. So no matter what, having like people, people is important. And then what skills do you think, like, for instance, I, I always ask this, like, if, and this is related, like if you were transported to 1000 AD, like, you know, King Arthur's court or whatever, <laughs> what, what could you do to convince them to let you live? I feel, <laughs> I feel I could do no, I can't even plug in this microphone before a podcast. Like, what am I going to do? I have no skills. I have no real world skills. I, I, immediately not die of dysentery. Uh, you know, I <laughs> I don't know. Like you could be a combat guy. Like they always need more knights of the round table and stuff. Well, like you could. How good am I against those guys since I've spent most of my life working with a firearm and they've spent most of their life working with their hands or a sword. Like I'm not sword fighting those guys. Like that is not happening. So yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a very good question. Uh, I, you got to I don't know. You just got to use your, you have to use the time you have now to build some of those skills if you didn't have any. I, those guys, I would probably like grease myself up in some mud and you know jump one of them from this in a way that they wouldn't see it coming because they didn't they weren't big on ambushes and uh, and kind of work my way in. For somebody else, you do have time right now, and I don't know how much time you have. It might be two weeks, might be three years, but you've got to at least start working on the basics of like how to defend yourself. That should be you know way high up the list. How to uh, you know cook how to prepare food or excuse me, store food, how to, you know, cook that on, you know, twigs that I can gather up in the park. Uh, one of the, the big things I'm going to say for anybody that lives in like a major metro area is you should be thinking about leaving is that those are, those are the worst places to be when supplies are cut off or, or the fighting starts. Yeah. Or at least not necessarily leaving beforehand, but having an exit plan. Like I was, I was, I lived right next to, the world trades, the ground zero, the world trade oh, center wow. on nine 11. Oh, wow. And you know, there was a, a, a debate, like what if we really needed to leave and there was no way to leave like that? Cause Manhattan's yep. an Island. Right. So that was something that was, you know, a conversation then. Uh, but, but yeah, people, cause that could, you know, cities that are in war could be, you know, breeding grounds of disease, dysentery, all that kind of stuff. Right. And they're going to run out of, they're going to run out of supplies first. Uh, I mean, I, th I think that uh, an average city, uh, like a like a big city, is usually kept supplied for like three days at a time. You count like all their warehousing, all the stuff in the grocery stores. The, the humongous ones, uh, like New York City, I would think it's less than that. I would think it may be even like a 24 to 48 hour cycle. Uh, hmm. As well as, I, I mean, New York is actually, uh, I, I will say, like arguably the worst place to be in the entire world when like things go badly. I just, I mean, for that reason, it's so big. All right, the 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 chain of or the supply chain to keep it alive are so small, as well as some of the you know the, the other like New York isms, you know, living in smaller houses and you know shopping every day. Is that still a thing that New Yorkers do? They shop for dinner stuff like every day at the bodega or whatever. Yeah, or they order. I mean, I do this. I do this still, and I don't. I don't live in New York right now. I I order from Uber Eats every night. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, you know, either way. It, that's not going to work anymore, obviously. And the people that, that typically shop you know, more European style, like, okay, I'm going to stop at the bodega on the way home and get the stuff for dinner, like, that's not going to work anymore. So that, that makes it, in many ways, like, the worst place in the world to be. So what's the fastest way to learn? And this is like, these are, I know these are, like, dumb questions, but, like, no, they're not, what's, not the what's the fastest way to learn how to defend myself? Because even if you take, like, I don't know, martial arts at the local martial arts oh, right. center. you're just yeah. learning what the you know right. you're not really learning a real world situation right uh, I've, 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 <laughs> I've actually thought about this quite a lot because uh, this was a question that came to me a lot right after the, the pandemic started so all of a sudden a lot of people that had never once considered their own safety were very much considering their own safety uh, that was also one of the ways that you knew things were, were really weird you had a lot of uh, people that, that hated guns all of a sudden showing up at the gun store like I'll take that one. Like my business partners, uh, his whole family owns pawn shops and he said gun sales were just through the roof. Oh, right. Crazy. Absolutely crazy. So I, I would say this, start with something, a, a tool that you can use right now. That's super cheap. Go to home Depot and buy a Vaughn roofing hammer. Basically it's a hammer on one side and a hatchet on the other. All right. That's probably the easiest weapon in the entire universe to use. Uh, because you instinctively, you, 
you know how to hit a nail or you know how to swing a, a drumstick. It's the same thing. I could it be argued that a hatchet is not the best defensive weapon because I can get inside of it with a nail. So they're like high speed ninja. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Probably, but it's good enough. So go get your hatchet. It's also not so big that you're going to, you know, hang it in the doorway as you're trying to swing it at somebody. As well as like psychologically, uh, it still kind of counts as an impact weapon. And from a psychological perspective, for somebody that's never done violence before, an impact weapon is always easier to use than an edged weapon. Uh, What's an edge weapon? An edge weapon being like a knife, uh, mm. a sword, something like that. Now, a hatchet's still technically an edge weapon, but I'm thinking that there's a, a, a workaround in your brain. Uh, remember that scene in, uh, what is it, Gladiator, Russell Crowe, where they take him out and they're going to kill him? They ask for a clean death? Yeah, I don't remember. Okay. Well, it's, it's a minor scene. Uh, it's where they're going to execute him. And he says, give me a clean death. Well, in Roman words, what that means is stab me. Don't slice me. Uh, because that was one of the biggest things that the Roman army did better than everybody else. Is they psychologically got their guys to diver, deliver penetrating wounds instead of slashing wounds. And why is that important? Because it allows you to kill somebody by hitting a major organ with a penetrating wound than it is, however horrific it might be, a slashing wound, even with a sword, even with something humongous like that. Now, why do they have to work so hard from the psychological angle to, uh, to get their guys to be willing to do that? And why could they do it better than anybody else? Well, there's actually like all this like weird hang-up stuff, and I would kind of have to believe uh, David Grossman when he says that most people won't deliver a penetrating wound with like a knife because psychologically it's like, it's almost like mixing like sex and violence in a way that like your human brain doesn't really like to do. And that, I mean, it makes logical sense. Now, can you overcome that with, I don't know, six months of knife work? Yeah. You don't have six months of knife work. So let's stick to the impact thing. So that's where you're going to get the hatchet. It's, it's a lot closer to like an impact weapon, even though it's sharp. Other than that, I mean, you're, you are going to have to do something to, uh, to train yourself. And I would recommend, like, uh, MMA, uh, go to a boxing gym. I mean, boxers are fantastic fighters. Now, are there weaknesses uh, that a boxer brings to a street fight? Sure. Like, they don't ever throw kicks at each other or do take the winner. Still, having two months of boxing experience is something that it helps you immediately and probably translates well enough. Uh, I mean, one nice thing about e- either boxing or MMA or kickboxing, you do get better like moment number one. Like you're going to go and they're going to show you the right way to throw a punch. And uh, you, know, you might even throw a couple at somebody else. You're not like a million times better, but you're like, you know, you're that much better. And every time you keep going to class, you keep getting better. So, I mean, learning how to fight is a huge deal, even if it's just a little bit. Even learning how to fight is a little bit. And then what I, what I always wonder is how do you think th- – why do you think things got so polarized so quickly? Like, even if you go back 10 years or nine years to 2020, 2012 elections, Obama mm-hmm. versus Romney, I feel like you could have felt strongly about one side or the other, yeah. but you could still have discussions about it. Like you could still talk to people who supported the other side and, and you would say, okay, I see what you're saying, but I'm going to go with this guy. He seems like right. X, Y, and Z. Oh, I agree. Absolutely. In fact, I just wrote a piece about this on my, uh, my blog. I mean, even if you didn't like Obama, like he, he could give a speech, man. It was hard to watch one of Obama's speeches, no matter how much you disliked him and not like him a little bit. Cause like he was just really talented at giving speeches. He was great at it. And, uh, he kind of had that way of like mesmerizing a crowd that you see amongst really good politicians. How did it get so polarized? Uh, without like really putting my tinfoil hat on, but kind of putting my tinfoil hat on. It, it really does feel like there was this kind of like global, globalist conspiracy to like push things in a certain direction. And uh, I mean, that's, the, that's really the only way I can explain it. There's, to me, there's no way the thing should have gotten so polarized in such a short period of time. Uh, I mean, to me, it's even weird that like communism is like the thing that we're, we're fighting against right now. Like I thought communism was dead in like 1988. I haven't thought about communism again since like they stopped making action movies about communism in like 1991. I had no idea that it was like a recovering ideology and was so like widely, uh, you know, 
loved. And, and it's, that's crazy to me. Yeah, I mean, you even look at just history. It's never worked in any country. And there's a reason, there's an economic reason for it is that the, the price, if you give up profits in a company, the price you pay for that is inefficiency. Right. So when a, when a competitor comes in who's more efficient than you, and so they're able to squeeze out more with less, they, you have to get more efficient in order to generate profits or you'll go out of business. So if you have all these competing companies getting more and more efficient versus countries where there's no profits, so they, they, become, they never have to fight for efficiency, that's why you see Soviet cars compared with U.S. cars or Japanese cars. There was a huge difference in the 80s. You can actually look back even further in time, too. There was uh, one, one colony of, uh, of like Quakers or whatever in the early 1700s that decided when they founded their little colony, whatever, they're like, hey, man, here's what we're going to do. Everything we get, we're going to put a communal storehouse. Everything's going to be groovy. They were like the first hippies ever, you know, like even with their little you know, weird buckles and stuff. And uh, their first year, they almost starved to death because with no incentive of like, this is my stuff, and if I have excess, even I can sell it, and I, I'm going to make a better life for my family's kind of thing. Nobody wanted to work. That's, that's communism in a nutshell. Like, if nobody wants to work, uh, if there's no incentive to, to work harder, who's going to? Yeah. I mean, you think that's why there's so many people who are not at work right now? Like, yeah, you go to a restaurant at half staff. Oh, I mean, absolutely. I mean, we're, we're seeing it big time here. Every, every business in, like, the next three counties has, you know, hiring signs, like, please, like, we need help. And uh, a lot of those at, uh, you know, significantly above, you know, minimum wage for, for the kind of job that it is. And uh, they, they cannot find people. And, I mean, it does make a lot of sense. I mean, if you're getting 600 bucks a week in unemployment, or you can go work at the uh, truck stop down the street for 400 a week, which one are you going to do? Yeah. And, and, or if you just sit at home and do nothing. <laughs> well, that's what I mean. That's where the, uh, that's where the 600 a week comes from. That's what the unemployment benefit was for a while. Whereas, uh, I yeah. mean, uh, uh, where's the work out to? Uh, yeah. Think, uh, a $10 an hour worker makes $400 a week before taxes. I mean, I was, I was very confused about all this during the economic lockdowns, which the government was enforcing, you sort of had to pay people to not work because people wanted to go to work. Right. But if you pay too much, I mean, I even had this discussions with, you know, the Larry Kudlow, who was the nation's economic advisor. Like you, there's a fine line between supporting the people you're asking to shut down and they don't, even though they don't want to, and then, or get, and giving too much so that people just totally back off from working. Right. And you know, it would also, I think, for a lot of these people that had those kind of low-paying jobs, I mean, really, if you took a year off, like you had some job that, that sucked, but that was what you had, and it was just barely making it, and you got to take a year off and, like, do whatever you wanted, really. Like, it would be really hard to go back to that, you know, kind of, kind of bullshit job. And, yeah, you know, yeah it'd, be, it'd be rough. So these are some of the things, I think, that are probably contributing to the ideas that maybe there could be problems down the road. Like, what do you think, what, uh, like you're neck deep in this stuff. Like, what do you think are the odds of a so-called civil war two or some problem that, you know, is scary? Given the fact also yeah. that most Americans are pretty lazy and yeah. don't want anything bad to happen. That, that's <laughs> actually my, that's actually what, what tempers my, uh, my belief that there will be one. Because most people are too lazy to get involved. I mean, that is just the bottom line. Uh, there's there's a huge percentage of people that are like, can, can I like watch this on pay per view? Like, nah. Okay, yeah. then I'm not I'm not going. I'm not participating. And that's that's actually kind of sad in a way too. Because there's also, I mean, a, a pretty significant percentage of people that would just let like the government like stand on their neck with a jackboot rather than do something. Uh, so I'm gonna call it like seventy thirty. With the thirty being the Civil War part, I say seventy against thirty percent for, which is, is still high odds. I mean, those are really, really high odds, uh, higher than I would like them to be. Because like three years ago, four years ago, let's say five years ago, okay, before the Donald Trump era, those odds were like ninety-five, not going to happen, and like five going to happen. Right. And if it was the five, it had to be like influenced by somebody outside too. Like there had to be some kind of like crazy event to make it happen. 
So, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's great odds, but I think it actually goes up every day. And I mean, we could see some some crazy things too. Like, I, I think there's a huge number of people right now that are not going bananas because they still think that we can fix this through an electoral process. And if the 2022 election has the same kind of shenanigans that the 2020 election had, I, I think that changes the odds significantly. I think you could see some fireworks after that. So, you know, it's... It's interesting again, like I feel, I feel like there, this is almost like a prequel to the matrix. Like the, the matrix movies never had a prequel. And I could just imagine though, that it being like this where, okay, everybody's told to stay at home. And then suddenly the biggest companies in the world are saying, Hey, instead of staying home, why don't you come into this metaverse that we're building like this virtual reality thing? It's going to be a lot of fun for everybody. And it just seems like this is how a prequel, I would write a prequel to the matrix is like this. <laughs> right. right. So like you go into the metaverse and you actually pass out on your couch and then here comes the, uh, the Facebook moving truck. It pulls up in front of your house, comes in and puts you in a cocoon, carries you out. Yeah. Bam. Yeah, we're in the matrix. Yeah. Yeah. We're, you, you live, it's a better life anyway right, being in right. the it, metaverse. That, so. was in the, that was in the fine print of the contract that you didn't read. Yeah. There, there you go. Yeah, man. I mean, that's, that's possible. That, that you're, it's a very good point. Uh, you know, the other thing is, like, you got to look at what's happening in uh, Australia and Europe. Like, they're way crazier than we are right now. And uh, you got to wonder, are those same kind of lockdowns and, uh, and, and vaccine mandates and stuff coming here? And, you know, will our people really put up with that? As, uh, as much as Americans are lazy and, and soft, like, they also have, like, a strong history of rebellion. Like, like there are things, I mean, that's, that's built into our DNA. And they are also, you know, armed to the teeth. So yeah. those are both wild cards. Now, uh, you mentioned in the book you've done some private security work. Like you had, you know, clients in, Mon you know, Montana or, or wherever they were there. You mentioned some rich clients that had to um, kind of appease the neighbors so as not to get them all upset. But what's, do people really need private security? <laughs> like who, who actually needs private security? I can't imagine, other than like a celebrity who doesn't want to be right. harassed in the middle right. of the street in LA, like does someone need private security in their home all the time? I'll tell you something that I never told them uh, because they were signing my paycheck and that's just how it is. <laughs> in a real like, 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 like no shit, like things have gone terribly bad, your private security is either going to leave to protect their own family or cut your head off in your sleep and then take over your compound for their family. That's just kind of the right. that's just kind of the way that these things go, like uh, you know, all these dudes, like uh, you know, celebrities or you know, Bill Gates or anybody else that has like a, a a massive amount of money and therefore needs private security now. In a in a real like crisis event, it's not going to work out. The only people that are going to be able to have private armies at that point are like you know warlords. Like odds are, the person that will be you know sitting in Bill Gates's compound if that actually goes down is whoever the toughest guy was that was on his security detail. Like like his equivalent to like a colonel right now will be sitting in the big chair with the uh, the downflow of uh, security goons. Right, like if I, if I was if I was someone like Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos, I would be thinking, okay, my my plan B or plan Z, whatever you want to call it, would be to change my appearance, <laughs> figure out how to um what what is going to be valuable in terms of trading and stock up on that in various locations around the country or the world and that and and get paperwork for another identity. Well, like that would be my my plan Z. I would have a bunch of uh of like dudes that are like gangsters around but I would do more than just pay them to I would hang out with them. I would build like a personal relationship so that they didn't want to cut my head off when uh when when push came to shove. And, uh, you know, I would also build a plan where I, I brought them in, like, here's what we're going to do. We are going to have a bunch of stuff to trade and protect us. Is that, that's how, that's how you keep yourself alive in a situation like that. That's like, that's like Green Beret 101, like, okay, well, if there's going to be an insurgency, well, I'm going to have the biggest insurgent team. Yeah. So interesting. Well, you know, Clay, Clay Martin, author of Prairie Fire guidebook for surviving civil war two and co concrete jungle, a green berets guide to urban survival. 
this is all so interesting because simply because of the fact that we are having this conversation. It's it's, it's like an interesting it's, thing. It's, <laughs> it's, well, it's nuts. Like you said, three four years ago, this would be like some some lunatic like like. I don't even want to talk. This is so crazy. And now, I mean, it's, it's mainstream. Like, you know, people are talking about this over their dinner tables is that it looks more and more like it's happening. I mean, they put up blast balls around the, uh, the white house right now. Have you seen that? No. Yeah. Starting uh, last night, uh, they've been bringing in those, those pre-made concrete barriers, the big ones. I mean, the big bastards, like the stop rockets that we had uh, overseas. And uh, they built a blast wall around the white house right now, which is, I mean, it's disconcerting. Like that's. Yeah. Why do you think they're doing that? Why is it starting now? I mean, I have absolutely no idea. Yeah, the, the popular sentiment on like uh, Twitter today is uh, the only reason they're doing this is they're planning on doing something that you're really not going to like, which which makes sense. Uh, but I mean, I don't know. I mean, for all I know, they know there's a a, a protest scheduled for Washington D.C. or some kind of riot or something. But uh, it it's definitely something that's kind of without precedent, something that I, I've never seen before, and it's it's concerning. Well, well, look. If I show up at your place in the middle of the night, like, hey, I got you, man. Hey, Clay, I got you. I could fix your computer, and uh, I don't even know if I could do that. To be honest, I could write <laughs> can, a blog post. Can you, can you bring Jay, the engineer, to fix my computer? In that case, you're cool. We're yeah, in. I could bring Jay. Jay's with me. He's not going to cut off my head. I don't think. So, <laughs> well, you know, and really, I mean, I, I think we have time. You know, figure out something that you can do in an environment where there's no electricity. And work on that. I mean, it could be as simple. I mean, you're an entertaining dude. I tell my, my friend Jesse Kelly this all the time. Like, he's going to survive the jihad because we've got to have somebody around to keep us entertained. Like, that's cool. Yeah, he's a funny guy. He's a funny guy. Like, well, hey, man, you're fine, brother. And, uh, yeah, but I mean, everybody should be working on their skills right now. Like, this is the training time. This is, this is the montage and the uh, title fight's coming up, maybe. So be ready for it. Well, thank you very much, Clay. And... Come on again, and, and I'm going to try to get ready, and we'll see if I'm, if I'm improving. 